Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Exploring the Parsha class with Rabbi Rebecca Schatz and Rabbi Matt Shapiro. We are going to be discussing Parashat Naso, which uh, is actually a very famous Parsha for quite a few reasons, but you might not know that these things come from this Parsha. So Parshat Naso has three things in it that you might know. The priestly blessing is number one, um, not in this order, but the priestly blessing is number one. The laws of the Sota ritual are number two. And the third thing are uh, the laws of the Nazarite human. Nazarite law is what it's referred to. Nazarite. Nazarite. You don't mean human. Yeah, no, Nazarite law. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, so those are the three kind of most famous things that come out of this week's Parsha. We are going to talk about one of those things, the one that maybe you know the least about. We're going to talk about Nazarite law. And uh, I'll let Rabbi Shapiro begin. You begin. Are you going to go through the Parsha? No, but you already began. Oh, I did begin. Yeah, um, well. I mean, see, this is what I mean. You're messing with my stuff. Well, I didn't share the right screen. I, I know you didn't because you oh. messed with my stuff. See, this is what I'm Those saying. Those of you on the podcast are missing great faces oh, over here. Okay. Geez, a little. Okay, here we go. All right, where'd it go? We're also an all-women class today. What? Uh, wait, can you guys see the the psukim? Karen just said yes. Yes. They can't. I can. know, but I can't because of the two <laughs> screens, and it's over there. Ugh. All right. Okay, now I have to share the screen again. Okay. We stay. <laughs> what are we For those of you who can't read the chat, Tali just wrote, sounds like Stadler and Waldorf today, which is uh, finally the nicest thing anybody's ever said about me. Okay. Us. Me. There's much nicer <laughs> things about you. I guess. Yeah, that's what okay. I'm Here we go. Um, we're picking up in <laughs> the middle of the Parsha, but at the beginning of of a parak of a chapter. So, so like... There's not um, there's not really a lot of context to give other than I'll sort of foreground something that I saw as I was looking through the sources, which is that this chunk of um, of, of law comes on the heels of a different. It, it's right in between the other two uh, pieces that Rabbi Schatz named, which is it's right after the section about the soda water. And right before the priestly blessing, so there there is a what to be gleaned potentially about why it might be, you know, in in between yeah. those two sections. Um, so we're just starting at the beginning of chapter six. We're going to be focusing in on verses two through four. Starts like so many uh, good prakim do in the Torah. They bear and I am Moshe Very good. God spoke to Moses saying, "Daber el bnei Israel v'amar Speaketh unto ye verily the people of Israel and say to them, Ish o isha ki yafli lindor neder nazir, a man or a woman who here it's translated as explicitly utters a Nazarite vow. But I mean, we were talking about this a little bit last week, like that. There, there's a lot of this translation that is going to smooth out some like bumpy parts. In the Hebrew, it, it's so, some of it is unusual in terms of the language, and some of the construct funkiness gets sort of ironed out. So, like a person who like separates themselves or or wondrously, right? Pella um, has the idea to utter a Nazarite vow, and again, like that doubling, lean door neder, to vow of the vow of the Nazarite. Lehazir Ladunai to separate himself, um, like to God or, or for God. Anybody who's in that category, Miyain ve. See now, you made me. I can't read because it's so far away and I can't zoom in. Miyain ve sechar yazir chometz yain ve chometz sechar lo yishte. He should abstain completely, right? Separate like yazir from both wine and other intoxicants and he shouldn't drink like like vinegar it says vinegar of wine or any other intoxicant like don't don't drink uh tally going back to or or sorry um denise rather don't look at it 
Don't even touch it. Right? Don't touch it. Don't look at it. Just get far away from any and all types of intoxicants. Mishrat anavim lo Don't drink anything in which grapes have even been steeped uh, for any period of time. He shouldn't eat no, no yogurt-covered raisins for this guy. Um, oh, hi, Susan. <laughs> You're on Candid Camera. Hi, everybody. Okay, very good. Hi, I'll be back in an hour, everybody. Susan Nemitz will Susan be back in an back hour. hour. <laughs> um, who knows what other guest stars might walk in and join us. All thanks to Rabbi Schatz's wonderful idea to have this class together in my office. Set this up is in making this, uh... me very happy. Mm-hmm. You're doing great. Okay. So uh, any type of grape or raisin uh, shouldn't be eaten by the Nazir. You all right? Yeah. We're going to make it through? Maybe. Okay. Should we pause? Should we pause no, the no, podcast? No, no, we're good. We're good. Okay. All right. That's what I love. Very funny. Verse four. <laughs> I'm listening. Okay. Kol yimei nizero, all the days of his Nazarite-hood, mikol asher yaseh, migefen hayayin, then here we have, mechatz, mechartzanim ve'ad zag lo yochel. So throughout his Nazarite term, uh, he shouldn't eat anything at all from the grapevine, and here are not one, but two examples of a word that occur, occurs only once in the Torah, these chartzanim and the zag, so translated here, anything that's obtained from the grapevine, even seeds or skin, which one is the seeds and which one is the skin, depends on which commentator you talk to. But basically, to sum up, um, anything that is Grape, grape adjacent, or grape adjacent adjacent is off the table for any and all Nazarites we are discussing. <clears throat> Rabbi Schatz, over to you. Okay, great. So let's, um, you don't have to move out of the camera. I know, I'm just getting comfortable. Okay. Um, yes, Karen, you seem to have our first question. By the way, I do really appreciate that this is an all women uh, class. It's so nice. No, no, I'm just saying of the students. You're doing great. Yeah, Karen. What's a Nazarite vow? What's a Nazarite vow? Um, I don't know what I'm looking at. Um, so, so great. So do you want to explain this? What's, what is a Nazarite? Yeah. I have another question. Okay, great. What's with the grapes? I mean, right. Great. So, okay. So why don't you explain what, what a Nazareth, how do I put down her hand? I will. Oh, she knows how. I just can't do it. Go over there. Oh. Have you never done that before? I have. I have. But I, just... I just taught Rabbi Shot something no, no. about Zoom. It's a big day. Okay. Nazareth. Listen, when do you, <laughs> when are you available to, to really book a session? Seriously. Me? Both of you. Together. To book a session for what? <laughs> Oh, for, for counseling? No, we're doing great. Um, okay. Go ahead. Nazarite law. Nazarite law. There isn't a lot of context for it in advance of, of that, right? It's not like it was something that was being talked about earlier in the Torah and we're just picking it up now. It just sort of gets like plonked in here, right? In terms of this is now a thing that we're exploring. There are other areas where it seems like it's like vaguely referred to. Like if, if you go through Safaria, it'll sort of say like, well, it's kind of referred to here, but this is really the first that we're hearing of this as a construct, which is part of why it's, it's something that we can discuss and explore together because we haven't heard about it before. Right. So to, to, I know we usually focus in on the, Sukim being offered just to give, uh, I guess, a little more context for what this is, since I think, Karen, that's part of what you're asking. Yeah? Yeah. Um, the, in addition to the rules about grapes and wine, there's also the rules about, about hair cutting, right? That, it's why that, this week we read the Parsha of Shimshon of Samson, because Samson was also a Nazarite and had to abide by these right. rules. So those are like the two... And, and there's lots of commentary that we can get into about, like, why the wine and the grapes, why the hair, right? Um, but this idea that um, if, if, if you're someone who's going to utter this vow, those are the two categories of thing, which begs the question, why would somebody do this, right? Like, why, why is this a vow that you would take on? Particularly, we see elsewhere in our tradition, um, real vow hesitancy, 
right? Like, mm-hmm. like don't, don't bite off more than you can chew in terms of vows that you are committing to. Um, like that, that's taking God's name in vain, potentially like you generally a no, no. So like your, your, your question begs more questions in terms of like, this is a construct that's relatively new. We haven't seen much about it. There are these parameters, but there's still the question of like, well, why, why have this at all? Is, okay, is one of the things that we can explore. When yes, I Aaron. hear the word Nazarite, I think of Christians. Right, because like Jesus of because Nazareth. Yeah, right. So it's a it's it is we we think that it was based on where these people were from, right? Like Nazarite being like. Um, I can't think of another example. Moabites, right? Like being being people from that place. And as we all know, Jesus was Jewish. So um, the idea that he was from Nazareth, it's possible. I actually didn't look into this because I, I didn't have the same association as you did. But it's possible that it was the people. Did you? Oh. I, I, I looked it up a little bit. It seems like one is a construct and one is a place, right? Like you, you oh, can. Oh, so Nazareth isn't from a place? Like not specific, people, not people specifically. From, oh, interesting. No, because like this is a, this is a, that's at least what I saw. Uh-huh. Um, but like, this is a category of something that you would take on regardless of what place you're from. Mm. And there's also a town called, but, but I think the distinction, and this is where it gets garbled in like the translation, this is Nazir with Zion and the right. place is Nazareth with itself. Oh, true. I have right. That. So, yeah, so when we, when we translate or transliterate, it gets smushed together. Um, yeah, that's a good point. but it's, it's Zion rather than Zion. I guess I had always thought about it as something that like, yes, people take on, but maybe they only knew about it if they were from a particular place. No, but it's, in the but it's right. right. Interesting. Okay. That's my understanding of it. Renee. I'm just thinking about the hair thing. Yeah. And, is it coincidence that this Parsha and the reading of Shimshon um, is closely in time related to Lugbomer? Probably, but that's an interesting connection. Yeah, I don't, I've never heard that before. Also, depending on the year. Well, no, yeah, I guess it's, it's always time it's always around-ish the time. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's definitely not why people cut their hair on Lagba Omer, but it is interesting that those two customs um, come into play very similarly in in a time in a time period. Uh, Joanna. Okay. So, two things. Picking up on the grape thing a little more. Not only like this whole question of like what's with the grapes that you can't have them, but like the overemphasis on them. Yeah. You you really don't need verse three. Verse four says it all. You can't have anything to do with a great the end. Yeah. Clear. Um, and my other question also in trying to understand, um, you know, who's a Nazarite and what is this all about is if we say that the word comes from a Shorish that means to separate, there's a much more common word for to separate. Lahavdil, havdala. So, if we're using a different word here, I would think it's trying to get at something. And 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 what is that? What are we trying to get at? Yeah, great. I saw a few commentaries about that. I can't remember if I put them on my sheet or not, but <laughs> we will find out. Um, but yeah, I'll look at it on my phone. Um, but yeah, there's also the word lifrosh, right? Like to, to separate in that way too. There are many different words for separation. The fact that we're choosing to use this word, you're right, is very interesting and potentially then, then is playing into a different kind of connotation for this type of separation, which as we're seeing is around hair and wine and different kinds of consumption around grapes. Um, to go back to your, to your point about, um, verse three, I just want to move you all out of the way so I can see it for a second. Um, the, are you going to talk a little bit about the intoxicant part? Go say whatever you're going to say. Okay. Um, well, I just, yesterday when we were talking about which verses to choose, because our week started on Wednesday, um, <laughs> we, uh, Rabbi Shapiro mentioned that it's a very interesting, um, note that it actually it goes as far to say intoxicant it's not just like don't drink things that have grapes but to a level of intox like to a level that those things could take you to intoxication um 
that's why I was wondering if you were going to bring it up just in terms of like, what does that do for that particular verse? Right. Cause Joanna, you said like, why, why do we need both? But that one seems to really emphasize the change of mindset and the change of uh, potentially action around what those items could do to you as opposed to just uh, ingesting right. them. The, the way Except I, I would I would argue that if the issue is intoxication, grape juice would be okay, and all alcoholic beverages would be verboten. Right. 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 Yeah, I mean, I think that I I know very little about how food was prepared back in the day, but I know that a lot of things were fermented because they were able to be kept longer. And fermentation, though though not always. Uh, like a drunkenness fermentation does play with your body differently than just like raw fruits and vegetables. So it could be that also intoxicant just means something different with different types of fermented foods than, than the way that we understand intoxication to mean uh, when it comes to alcohol or, or kinds of drugs. My, my sense of it is that when it says yain v'sechar, that like sechar is what expands it, be, like like no wine or beer or liquor, right? That like that's yeah. what expands the category. I think it's interesting. I mean, I don't know what you you do or don't have lined up. I mean, there's yeah. there's what good. there's <laughs> what to say about um, you know the the motivation. But I'll speak kind of more broadly to the halakhic construct that I'm sure many of you know, right? This idea of building a fence around the law, yep. right? Which is which is how a I sayad see, Torah, some would say. Some might. Um, to which, like, that's how I see, like, verse 3 and 4. Like, verse 3 is like, like, these are the things that you really shouldn't do. And then verse 4 is the fence, mm-hmm. right? Like, don't don't drink, no wine, no alcohol, no drink that looks like it might be alcohol, mm-hmm. no grapes, no grape skins, no grape seeds, right? Like that, that, you know, we see in there from my perspective, I, I did like, I didn't see any comments that named that specifically, no, but, yeah. but in looking at those two verses, from my perspective, at least it's almost implicit, right? It's, it's clear to me at least that that's kind of what's going on here. Now that we can like take that back a step and a half and say, but why would someone make that vow, and what does that actually what does that actually mean? Yeah. Um, which is also ripe, right? Uh, for discussion. See, don't um, you like this because now you have an in person audience? Yeah, but I, I can ha- laugh. Yeah, but I have to look over to the side. Oh, oh, okay. Just, um, that that there's what to talk about there, but in terms of doing your question about like why verse three, why verse four, that's my sense of it, right? That it's like extra, you know, extra sayagin. Lots of sayaging going on for whoever would make this vow, why ever they would make it. I don't know. If, I don't know. Like agree, disagree, how that hits for you, but that's my sense of it. All right. Um, why don't you lead the way? Really? Yeah. Um, I'm just, we are just reading the chat. Hold on a second. Uh, so Denise made a comment about why. <laughs> that's why Jesus always has long hair in paintings. Uh, may, maybe, although. Again, the Nazarite, Nazareth thing, I think, is is a bit of a stretch, but it's good to know that long hair wasn't a Roman look. I don't know much about Roman looks at all. Um, and Tali put this idea of how how specific... Um, like grapes as yeah. opposed to other vine things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, like I said, a lot, a lot of these words getting into, like, the specifics of... Grapes and grape adjacent products products seem to be like pretty unusual um, in the language of the Torah, and I, I don't know a ton about that. Uh, Karen, I'll read your point, and then I'll go over to Denise, and then we can use that as a springboard. So yeah, so Karen said in the chat that like that is that is one understanding, right? Karen wrote, "People who take a vow to voluntarily dedicate themselves to God—that's what a Nazarite is." So intoxication could lead to not as godly behavior, which is also like yeah, I have a it's, comment on that, right? Actually. But it's yeah. it's like it's it's kind of also a chicken or egg thing, right? Is that something, is that a vow that you would take on because that's something you're interested in pursuing? Or is that a vow that you take on because you're noticing like you're, you're, you're tending in that direction and so therefore you're making that vow, right? Is this like proto moving into rehab, right? Like is, is this that like you're noticing 
something that's going on that isn't working for you. And so then you're extending yourself and you're taking like an external commitment of accountability and building those fences to like protect yourself from making choices Mm -hmm. that aren't so healthy for you. Um, So I think, I think that, you know, and particularly with previous professional experience is something that I find to be um, very, very interesting. Denise. So I'm just wondering, are there any halakhot that talk about like, how does the Nazir make Kiddush or things like that? Yeah, they're, they're, what I, I saw one, I mean, Rabbi Shas probably looked more closely at the halakha than I did, as is often the case. You looked very carefully at the halakha, right? I didn't, I didn't really, but she looked I more, have she looked more carefully than I did. Um, <laughs> but I, I did see something that there's a, there's a distinction between like the Nazir and other folks. Like the Nazir shouldn't even like make, make Kiddush. Yeah. Right. Is that, is that what you, that you understand? Yeah. It's, I, if I'm not mistaken and I didn't look into it this time, but if I'm not mistaken, I, you can make Kiddush over challah. Um, so I'll give you a very practical example. My family was in Austin, Texas, uh, right before the pandemic. So last February for my cousin's wedding. And before we went to the rehearsal dinner, which was on Shabbat, we made Shabbat in the, um, in the hotel room because we knew that they weren't going to be doing blessings at the dinner. So we couldn't find kosher wine. And in my family, we only do kiddush over kosher wine or hectured grape juice. And so we had challah that I had brought from Los Angeles, uh, but we had challah. I didn't bring wine on the plane, but challah I could bring. Um, we had challah, and so we used the challah twice. We did kiddush over the challah, which you can do. You just don't say bore pre hagafen because it's not it's not a, a geffen product. But you can say mekadesh hashabbat over the over the um, challah, and then we use the same challah, obviously, to say to say Hamotzi. So I believe without looking in the Shulchan Aruch right the second, I believe that that comes up, whether it's the first time or the second time, that law actually comes up in part because of anyone who doesn't drink wine or can't drink wine or grape products for Kiddush, um, the different kind of levels of product that you could use to do Kiddush uh, instead of grape products. Okay. Um, oh, you wanted me to start. I forgot. Um, sorry that I'll be looking at my phone, but as you can see, we're only at one computer, so I have my source sheet on my phone. Um, so Rabbi Shabir printed his. He wants you to know that. Very prepared of him. Okay. I'm not... I didn't ruin any trees. Um, okay, so... The trees were already ruined. One of the things that I was most interested in, and I think that this was Joanna who who brought this up, like, why the word Nazir as opposed to another word of, of separation or any other kind of um, kind of making yourself different from those around you? Why why is Nazir the word that's that's used? Or why that why is that root used? So... Um, uh, so Sforno um, brought brought a very interesting piece here that says to separate himself from all the pleasures in order to devote himself exclusively to the service of God, to study God's Torah and practice walking in God's ways. So do you also have that one? I mean, I saw it. But... He's nodding. Um, so one of the, I think, Joanna, to your point is that one of the ways in which this is a separation is very specifically from like your own urges to be able to connect more closely to God. Whereas like Havdalah or Lehafrish Min Hatzibur, those kinds of separations are not necessarily away from yourself. They're just um, separations from whether it's a day or an experience or a group of people, um, but you're not trying to separate something out from... Ooh separate something out from you. Now I don't have to yell over the air conditioning. <laughs> um, so I think that's a really interesting piece that, that it's, it's really devoting yourself to God and to God's Torah and to God's um, laws. And that's what the separation is from. And what, um, what Ibn Ezra says before that is that it's not just that you might be, 
overcome with intoxicants, right? But that it really does do something to your, to your brain, to your emotions that you end up not really having a full sense of yourself of being then able to, um, whether it's daven or learn or whatever. And before I pass it back over to Rabbi Shapiro, the thing that I think is, um, how is this different than the priestly people? What do you mean by that, Karen? Be, meaning what is, what's different about a Nazarite as opposed to a priest? So I, I, I yeah, I mean, yeah. you can answer, I can. No, go ahead, go ahead. You so, seem to understand the question. So like, you're saying because they're both sort of like categories of holy people? Right, and going to, right. Right, so it's, so it's an interesting, right, the distinction is hereditary versus voluntary. Yeah. Right? The, the, the priestly class, it's the, the Levites, right? And the, and the Kohanim, right, are descendants of Aaron, right? So, so that's biologically transmitted. This is something that someone voluntarily does, which, which is, again, like, I, I find it to be an interesting, con- like, what, and Rabbi Schatz is speaking to it a bit, but, like, what is, what is the thought process through which someone decides a Nazarite vow sounds like a good choice for me, right? <laughs> like, like this, this is something that I want to take on. And I, and I well, think that that's an interesting. It, um, it also feels like a Orthodox people. Say more. Yeah. What do you mean? Who, who study, but they drink a lot. I mean, I mean, they, they can take from the, uh, the uh, wine, but they're, you know, giving themselves in a way to walk in God's path. Well, I think that, I mean, am I being ridiculous now and we don't have to talk about Are you, are you saying because you're thinking of like a scene in which there's like L'chaim's happening while people are learning Torah or you're talking about like the setting of like those kind of more ascetic boundaries or both or neither? Well, there's wine at dinner. It doesn't matter. But Hmm. when I think of devoting oneself to God, there are people who say the Bible, you know, the Torah is the Torah and that's what we're doing and. I'm devoting myself to God's ways. No, am I off base? You no, know? I don't think you're, I don't think you're off base. I just I, I I think that that when it comes to this particular and as Robert Shapiro said, like this particular choosing, right? You didn't you weren't born yeah. into this way. So I think that that we all have to like take this a little bit metaphorical for a second. We all have things that we should stay away from so that we are more level headed about other things in life. Absolutely. So not to categorize the entire Orthodox people because (laughs) there are plenty of Orthodox people who don't drink and plenty of Orthodox people who drink too much and don't study well enough, right? Like there's, there's, there are people. Um, But I think that, and Rabbi Shapiro can speak much more to this in terms of his work at Beit Shuva, that part of, part of figuring out your own boundaries, right? To go back to the idea of Sayagla Torah, like your own boundary of something. I might be able to drink and study Torah very well, but I might not be able to, I don't know, uh, eat candy because it might make me too tired to stay up to finish whatever learning I had to do. So there, it, it's, I think in, in a modern context, obviously not in the Torah, but in a modern context, I think the wine piece or the grape piece is just using something that could have had more of a global effect on people. But what it's really trying to get us to understand is what is that thing that you sometimes have to put aside so that you can be level-headed and in front of your community and, right. and all lots that. of 12-step groups out there, but the one, the, the, the core one is still Alcoholics Anonymous, right? I right, think right. another way of saying that. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and Karen, I would actually sort of, oddly invert what you're saying right because because you're saying oh like this is so strict like that seems like an orthodox interpretation like people taking that on i would like take us back into like the mind of the torah which is that in the in the mind of the torah everything that's being laid out is expected of you period full stop right like we know this from the like very declarative thou shall and thou shalt not but thou shalt not there we go um like pretty black or white now obviously like there are different interpretations of Jewish law and different denominations, how we think about halakha, et cetera, et cetera. But within the mind of the Torah, it's actually pretty clear. Here are the things you should do and here are the things you shouldn't. What's interesting about this is that it's up to you, mm-hmm. right? Which is actually in its way so unusual, right? But, but what's unu- it's actually unusual mm-hmm. to say, like, if you like, here are additional commitments that you can take on. 
Mm-hmm. Usually in the Torah, it's this is what you got to do. This is what you can't do. Mm-hmm. And this is actually laying out a for those who want, those who need, however we're thinking about this, mm-hmm. you can do this. So, so it's like oddly the opposite, right? That, that, that this is something you can choose yeah. to opt into. I hadn't thought about that. I mean, cause it, cause it's, it, it does then make us think back to the point that I was making. Like it does make us think about what are the things then that we should be taking advantage of that aren't, that aren't commands of us, but that could be helping us put more boundaries around right. like are, relationships, are, life, right. work. What are the, what are the commitments that are healthy or important for me to take on that help give additional? Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll bring another piece from Sworno Cause I think it's an interesting juxtaposition here and Karen to your question. Like, cause it, it does seem like the layering of the don't, don't, Think about grapes. Don't look at grapes. Don't smell grapes. If you see a grape, run across run, run across the street as quickly as possible. Right? Like it seems pretty grapes in all forms. Too. In, intense, right? So it's like, why would anybody take some? But Sforno makes the comment. What he says is, he he juxtaposes. He says he is not to flagellate himself or practice fasting but only to abstain from wine and intoxicating liquids. The former methods of self-denial would result in a diminished ability to serve the Lord with all one's faculties. Flagellation, a common practice among certain types of monks and holy men, is not allowed. But becoming a teetotaler, I don't think Sforno wrote that in the original, but becoming a teetotaler does, does reduce the urge to let oneself go and engage in demeaning activities due to drunkenness. So what I find to be interesting about that is that it's sort of like placing it in a spectrum of ascetic behavior, right? Like we generally don't think about Judaism as an ascetic spiritual tradition, right? Like we have big meals, we schmooze at Kiddush, we sing, we dance, right? It's not, it's not monkish, right? Like our clergy, right, can get, not only can, often should get married, right? Get married, have kids, be in the world, right? Like in a way that Catholic priests, that's, those aren't the commitments that they make, right? So there's a juxtaposition there in terms of thinking about Judaism as like a, a spiritual tradition that is very much in the world. And it's, so it's interesting to me to say, even the construct of the Nazarite, that seems to be a pretty strict and intense regi- regimen to take on for spiritual connection with God, you don't go too far. Right. You shouldn't flagellate yourself. You shouldn't be fasting all the time. Right. You set the boundaries, grow out your hair, you stay away from grapes, but don't go too nuts. Right. So so it's it's interesting for me in terms of how Sforno is situating that construct in terms of like a larger understanding of what this may or may not have have looked like. So I I thought that was also interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I. I just had this thought that I that I hadn't made this connection to to Shimshon before, um, but that maybe the strength in Samson's hair actually comes from the fact that he's just not thinking about it, right? That that he's not. No, it's funny. That he's like not. That's not the focus. The focus is not his hair. The focus is not right. We make the focus his hair. But as someone whose hair has grown quite long over this pandemic, because it wasn't something I was thinking about. Like maybe the strength that is found is actually because everything else in his world was able to be elevated when that was not something to worry about. Well, there's I, there's definitely something to how like letting go of more worldly concerns can open you up in different right. kind of ways. I mean, right. like I'm thinking yeah. about how, you know, you'd hear from people going through the pandemic, like how glad they are that they can just like wear sweatpants all right, day right. and mm-hmm. how much more relaxing that, right? Let, yeah. That like, there is something about letting go of that concern or focus or preoccupation to be able to sort of just be and how that opens you up. Interestingly, I saw, I mean, we're not talking about hair too much explicitly, but like I saw commentaries that actually went in the exact opposite direction oh, really? that like by seeing like, of course you're going to notice the hair and like in noticing the hair, it's going to like remind you of your vow oh. to ha- like to yeah, have yeah. it as something that like 
th think like Trillin, think yeah, yeah. mezuzah is right, almost right, right. like an oat as it were yeah that, like interesting you you see that you're a hairy mass and because you're a hairy mass it's like oh right no wine for me right so like that there's a <laughs> reminder component in there somehow when i brush um, my hair i think no, no wine, wine for, for me. me that's yeah. good that's mm -hmm. a good train of thought yeah um but but yeah i i also think there is something to like letting go and then in turn how that well because that even i mean not uh not to take us too far off base because this has literally nothing to do with what we're talking about but when when you when you talk about people who even you were talking about um giving up red meat on shavuot right when you talk about people who who all the time not just on shavuot no you talked about it on shavuot oh. um that that People who once had a practice that then, when they then give it up, like veganism or not eating red meat in Rabbi Shapiro's case, um, that you become then more aware of the other foods that potentially you weren't eating or now you have to kind of fill yourself with more um, because there are other things that aren't that aren't being consumed that aren't. And so the focus just a very interesting it's like a very philosophical way of thinking about focus. Like what does focus do? If you let something go, do you have more focus for other things, which actually makes you more focused on the thing that you've let go. Um, and I could go in circles about this, but. Right. Well, but, there, but there's, and, and that I think Karen, going back to sort of flipping your comment around, that's what I think is interesting about the voluntary component of this. Like, right. again, going yeah. back to this question, like what, what prompts someone to, to make, to make this kind of commitment, you know, and, and getting into that and thinking, I mean, uh, there was a comment, um, Renee, you, you, you wrote need to be careful of slippery slope, like in Messilat Sharim, right. That like something about like bringing additional, um, attention or mindfulness, right. Like, and, and trying to be aware of that. There's something else I was going to say, which I'm forgetting. And Joanna has her hands up, has her, well, virtual hand up. So, um, two, two things. One of which I think I just forgot. Oh, now, now I remember. Um, so around the whole, um, hair thing and that being a physical reminder, it's interesting, like, to think about different periods on the Jewish calendar when we typically don't, one doesn't cut hair during the Omer, during the nine days of Av, where there are other things that are also supposed to be happening during that time also. So that's a really intriguing concept of, you know, tying in the not cutting hair to being some sort of physical reminder of other things that one should be refraining from and focusing on during those periods. The other thing in terms of the, you know, ascetic in Judaism. So I happen to have a chumash open in front of me. And as we're talking, I'm looking, you know, at the rest of the verses about the Nazir. And you get to verse 13, which talks about the ritual on the day that this vow is completed. So there's a sense that, um, you know, unlike, let's say, a priest who takes those vows forever and ever, that this is like a short, intensive period of focus and separation and elevated holiness or, you know, however else we want to describe it. But it's meant to be a, a period of short duration with a beginning and an end. And, and it is, it appears not to be a Jewish value to live in this way forever. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you naming that. That was the piece that I was going to speak to. So thank you for speaking to it and reminding it me. Yeah. Um, it, it's very interesting like that those are the three criteria, right? Like the no no grapes of any kind, don't cut your hair, and also like what you do if and when you decide to conclude that that time period. There's also a conversation about like what motivates concluding the time period. How do you know? Is that a praiseworthy thing? Is that a problematic thing? Right? Like there, there's an interesting back and forth on that. But yeah, it's definitely interesting to think about this as by and large, not a lifetime commitment. Right. That that you do this for a set period of time. I like how you're lining it up with like other times we don't and you don't like cut our hair. That's interesting. Going back um, uh, to the question I was asked earlier about that as well. Um, but interesting to note that what whatever, again, like with sort of that amorphous motivation, it could be a lot of different motivations for whatever might be pushing this forward for someone that it's not seen as a and this is now what you do for the rest of your life. Right. That this is something that you do for 
generally a, a time limited period. Um, Denise, I saw your question. Has has there ever been a woman Nazir? I, I don't think we hear about many Nazirim or Nazirot uh, as it would be um, in Tanakh at all. I mean, we know Shimshon, we know Samson was a Nazir. I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think we have any other, like, narratives around the experience of a Nazarite, the Nazarite narratives. Um, but I, I don't also know a ton about, like, if there are Agadot about, like, Nazarites in the rabbinic period. I didn't see really anything on that when I was prepping for today. They're, they're interested in, like, the halakha of it as an abstract construct, but I didn't see much, like, of the halakha l'ma'asev, like, the, the practical frameworks for all the Nazarites who were hanging out in, you know, 300 BCE, right? It seems to be more of an abstract construct rather than something that was, like... Also, just just remember that this is during a time where we have the temple and the women were not involved in temple anything's. So most of the like even Sota, though, it has to do with the woman. It actually has to do with the man understanding the man's status. Um, so mo- many of these laws during temple times are very specific to men because it determined whether or not they were fit to then go to the temple and be able to do sacrifice um, or how they were doing sacrifices differently based on the different things that they took upon themselves like Nazarite law. Denise, did you want to follow up on that? Um, Just a little bit. It just makes me wonder, like everything you're saying, it just makes me wonder if this was like more of a theoretical thing. Like, are we supposed to be learning something else from this aside from how to be a Nazir? I, yeah, I mean, I definitely think so based on the little drosh that I gave earlier. Uh, and Rabbi Klickfeld actually just this past uh, Shavuot mentioned, you know, there's nothing in the Torah that is in the Torah because they thought that people might do it. If it's written in the Torah, the people were doing it and the Torah was telling you whether or not you should be doing it, right? So we assume if we believe that the Torah is true or even if we just believe that the Torah is based off of things that were happening for us to learn from, we assume that this was happening in this way, something around grapes with someone who also wouldn't cut their hair and the different kind of stringencies that they had in their lives around around these practices. But yes, it's I at least read it as a you know 21st century human that this is something that we now need to be looking to to figure out, well, if we aren't going to be following this as strictly as the law is telling us to, then what does this law teach us about how we can put strictures on ourselves um, to open us up to the things that the Nazarites were, suppo- were supposedly open to by taking on, um, as Rav Shapiro said before, these Sayag Torah elements, these different boundaries. And, and, and it might have been preventative in the, I mean, per Sforno's comment, right? Like mm. maybe it was also to say... Because we know this, right, that the ancient Israelites were part of a larger matrix of whatever was happening in religious and spiritual traditions of the ancient Near East. And there might have been all sorts of ascetic practices going on. So this was maybe saying, hey, don't let's pass on the flagellating and fasting and maybe don't have so much wine. Right. Like like maybe this was a corrective in the other direction. Like we can you you can see it either way. You can see it as, wow, what a big commitment to take on. Or you could see it as, wow, I really want to commit myself to God in a special way. Okay, I'm not going to go too overboard with it. This seems like a reasonable way to like take on this commitment. Hopefully most people can go a month or two without a haircut and a glass of Chardonnay, right? Like, like that, that seems like a way of doing it that is attainable for many people. And so if and when you want to like take that on for yourself – here is a way to do it. I, I think that, look, we, we, we have within our tradition, even though it functions like a, anybody else paying a little more mindful attention to the words they utter and the things they do during Aser Imei than the rest of the year, right? Like we, we have within our tradition embedded periods of time in which we shift our focus and attention, right? It's, it's not necessarily connected to specific practices across the board, 
but we still have a tradition that offers to us discrete periods of time connected to specific actions that focus our attention and bring our mindfulness to God and holiness, spirituality, whatever you want to call it in a specific kind of way. Um, so Denise, like to your question about like, well, if nobody was doing it, <laughs> why is it in there? Um, I think you can see this as undergirding a lot of that, right? Even if the practices look different, I, I think the construct is a compelling one, right? I, I think it's interesting to think about um, broadly, even if the specifics have shifted. Okay, that's exactly what I was asking. So thank you both. Yeah, totally makes sense. Do you anything you would like to share? No, do, do your piece. It, you want, what, what piece? That Joanna set, set you up for. No, that was that was it. Oh, was, do you share that? It wasn't a piece. Yeah. It was just like okay, referencing right. to I that. I thought you had a thing. I got lots of things, but um, is there anything else you want to share? I don't think so. Mine would take us down too too long of a rabbit hole. I think that's that's different than the one we're on now. So I don't think so. Okay. I mean, yeah, I, I also have a series of rabbit holes, including, of course, the Kabbalistic approach and talking about mm. Bina versus, uh, I mean, it was oh, interesting, my. Karen, to your to your question earlier about what's the difference between the priest and the Nazir, you and Rabbeinu Bachia, my friend, are on the same page, <laughs> as always, um, and Rabbeinu Bachia was talking about, like, what's the difference between the high priest and the Nazarite, Um in terms of which Sfira, Kabbalistically, they're connected to. And he actually places the Nazir on a higher rank than the high priest. Because, because he chose to take it on himself? Well, which is, so I was just thinking about can that. Can we share the paper if you're going to read it? So I, I can see. How, <laughs> I'm not going to get too into it because it, it's, it is a bit of a rabbit hole. Um, I'll say, I'll go in like the other direction and then I'll bring it to another point and maybe that'll wrap us up, which is interestingly, as you're saying that like, well, if he's taking it on, wouldn't that seem to elevate him? But our like, there's a fascinating piece in the Talmud that asks like, if someone is, um, obligated to do something and someone who is not obligated to do something, both do the same thing, who is more praiseworthy? Yeah. Who's more praiseworthy? The one who's obligated. The one who's obligated to do it. Which is exactly the opposite, right? For me, when Thanks I learned men that, and women. For, like for me, the first easy now. For me, the first time I learned it, it seemed totally counterintuitive, right? You would think, oh, you have to do it, so do it. You don't have to do it. Oh my God, you're doing it. It's actually the other way around. Like if you have to do it, you have to like like following through on your commitment. So to your point about oh well, then Azrael, well it's it's optional for him. So wouldn't that elevate him above the high priest? Like, no, yeah, I was wondering counter, if that's what the Kabbalah. It seems said. counter to that principle, yeah, yeah. which again goes into this really interesting idea of taking on a voluntary spiritual commitment and the valence that that holds within. Well, because unlike halacha, right? Where even even though I was. I, I was somewhat joking, and I'm completely serious, that when it comes to women can take on mitzvot that are not theirs, but they don't get any reward in the, quote, year, uh, world to come, year to come, <laughs> uh, world but to come, either. or other, yeah, um, because it's not something that's obligated to them. They can do it, but it's not obligated to them. But I thought that maybe for Kabbalah, because Hasidut is a little bit different in terms of, like, that which is mandated of you like it's a it's a little bit more of a um you're taking on kabbalistic theory or hasidut into your life not as not as um formulaic as like the laws of halakha so i wondered if that's why they were saying that taking it on was like seen as a higher stratosphere i mean yeah i mean rabbeinu bachia would still say do the mitzvot the way you're supposed to do them like kabbalah provides like layers of interpretation but he's not gonna like get lucy Oh, no, 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 I'm not saying that. Which is I, not how I would ever describe Rabbi Nebach. Yeah. Lucy, you see? Yeah. Um, okay. Do you, do you have a follow-up on that? I was just going to clarify, but I We've been holding right. it together pretty well. If anyone's still listening to the podcast, first of all, I don't know why. Second of all, you should have a medal today. We didn't, no, um, what? Well, it, it, it took a while. We finally landed on it, but but I don't know if they made it through the first 10 minutes. Um there's two different directions I can go to. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conclude with, with like another piece from the Rabbeinu Bachia. Thank you. There's, there's a, a quote out of Talmud that connects um, 
Nazarite with the coming of the Messiah. So if you want that, I can send that to you offline. It's very interesting. But um, continuing where we started with this idea of the Nazarite and the high priest, what what he talks about as being so praiseworthy about the Nazarite is he gets back into, um, I can pull up the language of the verse real quick so that folks can see it. Um, he gets back into this idea of ki yafli, Right, which is translated here as explicitly uttering, but again, this idea of pele, of of wonder, right? Um, and so he talks about the reason for this is because the nazir is displaying superior wisdom, and converting wisdom into something concrete requires the attribute of bina, one of the highest spherot, like sort of insight, wisdom, like insight connected wisdom. And then this is described in the Torah by Lindor Neder. So, so what Bachi is saying, like going into the mind of the Nazir for why it's more praiseworthy than the high priest is because there's something very, very wise about like coming up with a concrete way um, of thinking about how to put like your, your wisdom and your motivation into action, right? Which, which connects to a few different pieces that we've been talking today in terms of why someone would choose to do this and how they'd go about it. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting that where this commentary lands is on this idea of if, if you're going to make a choice to like have an idea for what you want to be doing and how you want to be doing it, you have that insight and then you find a way to put it into concrete action that takes a lot of wisdom. Um, and I think that when we think about taking on voluntary spiritual commitments and what motivates that and how we want to set that up, recognizing not just the commitment that that entails, but that requires some pretty um, deep thinking and reflection in order to get there. Um, I think it also speaks to the to the idea that sometimes you have to give something up to make space or something else that's going to make you even more whole than when you had that thing in your life, which I have not worked um, at Beit Shuba, but makes me think a lot of the work that's done there in terms of you think that this, whatever the addiction is, you think that this thing is, is what is making your life whole and meaningful. And then you get to a point where you recognize that actually getting, getting, rid of that um, vice can be something that allows you to actually feel more whole and more fulfilled. True. And to, to bring a classic Bechuvaism into the close, uh, you don't have to be an addict to be in recovery. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. That, that everybody has the things that they turn to for comfort, escape, distraction, soothing, um, and again, like that, this is a very democratic process that anyone can take on mm-hmm. Nazirhood, right? Man or woman, no prerequisite, right? And so, you know, that that's, that that's the invitation. That's the, the opportunity for, for everyone to explore that. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.